The National Archives podcast series, The Berlin Wall, 1961, The Construction 50 Years On, presented by Karim Hussain. This event was recorded on the 23rd of August, 2011, at the National Archives queue. I just want to mention a few things. First of all, the sources I've used to prepare this talk are accessible on site here at the National Archives, so you don't have to leave the building to retrace any of my research. Having said that, Because of the nature of this particular history, being about a foreign place, I've combined a lot of what academics have found in Germany with the records that are here to build a story for you. So what am I going to talk about over the next 50 minutes? Well, I'm going to start by saying something about the construction of the wall and why it's worth marking. I think it's also important for us to get a proper sense of exactly how remarkable it was and how much of a shock it was for the people in Berlin. After that, I'll talk about the 16-year period between the end of the Second World War and the construction in 1961, to give us an idea of the circumstances and context which led up to its creation. In this part, I'll examine the interweaving national and international processes which influenced the decision to build it. In the third part, I'll talk about the Berlin crisis of October 1961. This was probably the most dangerous moment in the war's history where the build-up of the previous 16 years culminates in a standoff between Soviet and American tanks in the streets of the city. Then in the last part, I'll try and sum up with a discussion on the different ways of thinking about the war, which have survived to this day amongst historians. So, the story of how the Berlin Wall came to be in 1961 is, first of all, a story which is synonymous with the Cold War. As such, it's not a pleasant story to tell, certainly not one we would choose to celebrate. The build-up of any war, even a cold war, one fought by proxy, is by its very nature an admission of defeat, a failure of communication and diplomacy reflecting badly on everyone involved. In Germany, this sense of failure is compounded by our knowledge that its people had to endure defeat in two world wars, suffer the awful dictatorship of Hitler's Nazi regime, only to then face an even stricter dictatorship under communism all within the space of a single lifetime. It's understandable, then, when we have to think about the Berlin Wall. Our thoughts naturally tend to centre on the happier events that surround its destruction. Most of us here will probably remember that historic night on 10th November 1989, with the live footage of Berliners cheering as they unleashed a lifetime of frustration at the symbolic object of their long, depressed history. It's this event which dominates our cultural memory of the place, not the story of its creation. We adopt the same selective memory when we think about the Berlin Wall's place in the context of the Cold War, where its fall is widely regarded as the beginning of the end. Amongst the Western democracies especially, this popular, one-sided memory has become, I would argue, almost too prominent. Maybe because we now live in a world where only a handful of Cold War communist countries still exist. China, Vietnam, Laos, North Korea and Cuba. So we're happy with the way things have turned out safe in the knowledge that we've won. But have we? And more importantly, can such a one-sided memory be accurate, or even complete? As we approach the 50th anniversary of the wall's construction, it's worth reminding ourselves that the story of how it came to be is just as important as the story of how it was destroyed. Not least because it allows us to acknowledge there was a time when people thought the wall needed to be built and the Cold War needed to be fought just as fiercely as we now think it was a mistake or in fact, that we won. With that thought in mind, the first question I want to try and tackle 
is what was it about the wall's construction which made it such a watershed moment in European history? Why was it necessary? And why was it such a shock to the people who had to live with it? It started with the decision to reinforce control measures between East and West Germany and so effectively close the border between the two states. In the divided city of Berlin, this brought about the wall's construction almost as an afterthought, a necessary consequence to an unavoidable policy shift. That decision came sometime in the first week of July 1961. It wasn't made in Germany at all, but in Russia by the then Soviet leader Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev. It was prompted by the fact there existed, from even before the birth of the East German state, a mass exodus out of the country. With 17 million people, the East German population was never big to start with, even compared to its neighbour, West Germany, which had about 50 million people at the time. So when in 1953 approximately 400,000 people decided to leave, the authorities were understandably concerned. This concern only grew as the trend continued unabated with around a quarter of a million people leaving every year. By 1961, the situation had become unsustainable as a sixth of the population, between 3.1 and 3.5 million people, had left. Calculations at the time predicted that there would be no East German people in less than 50 years unless some urgent measure was taken to stem the flow. The main artery for, people, for this flow of people leaving was West Berlin. People wanting to leave would first register themselves at the temporary refugee camp set up the southwest Marienfield district. From here, they could be flown or driven out of East Germany. Thanks to this process, we have an accurate statistical picture of exactly what was going on. Three months before the closure, in May 1961, almost 18,000 people fled through West Berlin. By June, that number rose to just over 19,000. Then in July, sensing the border could be closed at any moment, the number jumped to over 30,000 people. In a city of two million, the effects were visible, with residential streets emptying in the space of a few days and whole communities disappearing. The kinds of people leaving were also a cause for concern. They were by and large skilled workers, nurses, doctors, engineers and teachers, young professionals under 45 on which the future of any country depends. To prevent the inevitable collapse of the East German state as a consequence, Khrushchev then had little choice but to make the decision to build the border. The order itself was delivered to East Germany, otherwise known as the German Democratic Republic or GDR from Moscow on the 6th of July 1961. It set into motion an enormous mobilisation of men and materials. On the 28th of July, the Times newspaper reported that the combined strength of Russian forces in Germany, which was never less than 400,000, had brought 105,000 troops, supported by 1,200 vehicles from the Red Army's 1st Motorized Tank Division, within 30 miles of the city. Over the next few days, a 67,000-strong force broke from the main garrison and positioned themselves less than a kilometre outside the city limits, alongside 10,000 troops of the GDR's own National Army. The move was a major cause for concern, putting Soviet forces in dangerous and threatening proximity to the much smaller combined Western force of 24,000 men. As intimidating as this situation was, the Soviets took no actual part in the physical act of building the wall. Their bearing was enough to deter any military reaction from the West. Within the city, the East German authorities were left to handle their own rapid preparations for the new control measure by this time codenamed Operation Rose. Border forces consisting of 8,200 ordinary police were reinforced with 4,000 readiness or riot police. 
Behind them, 1,500 special security police and 4,500 state security or Stasi officers who were brought in especially to intercept any attempts at organized protest. On top of this, a massive brute force consisting of 30,000 members of the East German Communist Party's factory militias were mobilized for the task of discouraging any thoughts at overrunning the new border. Alongside the military build-up, huge quantities of construction materials were also being transported into the area. Over the first week of August, 18,200 concrete posts, 450 tons of barbed wire, 5 tons of binding wire and 2 tons of staples were all brought in and placed strategically out of sight along the 146-kilometre ring surrounding the western sectors. At midnight on Saturday 12th of August, whilst most of Berlin was still asleep, the GDR Secretary of State Security and Chief Architect of the operation, Eric Honecker, rang each senior commander, giving the order to march. Within a single hour of Sunday, the amassed force were in position, and the border was effectively shut. Troops were positioned every two metres along the entire border line, leaving only 13 heavily guarded crossing points. This human chain was the first manifestation of the war, but it was quickly followed by more solid structures which began to take shape by 3am as the GDR workforce began barricading train stations, closed streets and put up fences across open spaces, most notably at the site of the Brandenburg Gate. The whole affair was a masterful feat of administrative and organisational genius characteristic of the East German state's unparalleled capacity for planning, coordination and execution, and designed to demonstrate to the world the strength of communist ideology in practice. The construction was even more remarkable for the fact that it was achieved almost without detection by the hive of foreign intelligence agencies based in the city. In a massive game of cat and mouse, trucks used to move materials and men were deliberately dispersed and assigned long and indirect routes, making it difficult to pinpoint their precise purpose. In a telegram report on the situation sent to the Foreign Office in London that Saturday, the British concluded that the increase in activity and agitation amongst the people would not, in itself, precipitate an acute crisis. The report is time-stamped less than five hours before construction on the wall was due to begin. For most of the civilian population, too, the wall literally appeared out of nowhere. From the very beginning, Operation Rose was kept on a strict, need-to-know basis. So despite the thousands of people involved, only a select handful were fully aware of what their activities were leading up to. Now, to be absolutely fair, given the circumstances, everyone knew the border closure would eventually happen. No one, however, could have predicted or were prepared for how fast or comprehensive the new measures were going to be. Personal accounts of the day typically describe how the prospect of being divided from families, churches, schools and jobs left people feeling overwhelmed and in a state of shock and disbelief. Most people simply spent the day listening to Western radio broadcasts for news of what was going on and what might happen next. Some inside the Western sectors, not realising that the wall encircled them, tried to track its perimeter, ending up where they started before realising they were trapped in what at the time suddenly felt like a massive open-air prison. In their desperation, some tried to escape whilst the new border was still taking shape. Bernau-Strasse was the scene where people were later filmed, jumping from windows of buildings which faced onto the west side before they were bricked up. Some even tried to swim canals or wade through sewer systems before riverbanks were fenced off and drain pipes were grilled. That Sunday, a total of 38 people managed to get out. The following day, Monday 14th August, the first shots were fired at escapers. Luckily, no one was killed, at least not that time, 
but the message sent out was clear. Attempting escape could cost you your life. Now that we have some idea of how the wall was created, the question becomes, why would any government do this to its own people? Surely the more palatable solution would be to address the reasons why people were leaving. To answer that question, we need to start our story 16 years before the fact, with the end of the Second World War, and examine how events on the international and national stages shaped the East German government's attitude to its own people. This is also going to give me a chance to introduce some of the key characters, some of them like Khrushchev, Kennedy or Harold Macmillan, you'll be familiar with. Others such as Walter Ulbricht, Conrad Adenauer or Willy Brandt may be less familiar. So, Germany at the end of the Second World War was a country divided between the four main Allied powers, namely Britain, France, America and Soviet Russia. Established at the Potsdam Conference of 1945, each occupying power agreed to take control of a different zone of the country. Berlin, as the administrative heart, though located deep within the Russian territory, was likewise divided into sectors. Pending the political rehabilitation of Germany and the establishment of a new independent government with which the Allied powers could sign a new peace treaty and so restore normal international relations, the country was governed by an Allied Control Commission consisting of military representatives of the four occupying forces. At this early stage of the post-war period, reunification was the main objective behind Allied efforts to govern the country. But the relationship quickly deteriorated between the Western capitalist democracies and communist Russia as it became clear that each side was envisaging Germany's future in the ideological image of themselves. In Berlin, the growing mutual distrust between the different members of the Allied Control Commission finally collapsed in early April 1948, when the Russians withdrew their representation in protest against changes to the exchange rate between East and West German currencies. In response, Khrushchev's predecessor, Joseph Stalin, approved measures to begin an unofficial blockade of the Western sectors of the city. There was no legislation on which the blockade was sanctioned. That would have been a breach of Potsdam and subsequent agreements but rather by harassing traffic and or closing autobahn routes, airports and rail routes for supposed repair works, the East German and Soviet authorities were able to effectively stop traffic into West Berlin. For almost a full year, West Berlin had to be supplied via airlifts. By May 1949, air traffic controllers of West Berlin's hastily extended Tegel Airport recorded a plane laden with supplies landing every 62 seconds to keep the city from starvation. That same year, the idea of, of a collective defence for West Berlin lent weight to the forming of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, or NATO. But for it to work, West Germans would need independent representation. So on the 23rd of May 1949, the Federal Republic of Germany was born, with the Christian Conservative Democrat Konrad Adenauer elected as its first Chancellor. Six years later, on the 6th of May 1955, Adenauer signed the new West German state into NATO, as an independent government at this stage, if yet not an independent state. As a lifelong advocate of reunification, Adenauer's appointment and the creation of NATO were clear challenges to Stalin and later Khrushchev, prompting similar moves in East Germany, where a few months, months before Adenauer's formal appointment, the Soviet-controlled East German authorities conducted their own elections. Stalin's preferred candidate was the Marxist communist leader of the Socialist Unity Party, Walter Ulbricht. Needless to say, who won that election? Because there was no alternative. You either voted for Ulbricht or took the risk of registering your protest. Then in 1955, again following the West's example, the Soviet Union invited the newly minted GDR 
to sign its own treaty of mutual defence, creating the Warsaw Treaty Organisation. The creation of the two German states and the act of binding them to international protection pacts under any other circumstances might have afforded the German people a greater say in determining their own future. But in the context of the Cold War, the exact opposite happened. The two German states being entirely dependent on the financial support and supreme military authority of occupying forces, the German people found themselves become the knot in the middle of a global tug-of-war. Influence over Germany became a question of pride for the rival international communities led by the superpowers America and Russia. Given its location at the heart of Europe, the prospect of its fall also gave rise to the fear that it may potentially trigger a cascade or domino effect, resulting in the fall of Europe as a whole. Neither the communist bloc or the Western capitalist alliance were therefore willing to let go of their grip over Germany. The question of what to do with Germany became a mood point in almost every discussion between the superpowers. The closest they got to resolving the dispute was in March 1952. When Stalin, fearing that the German situation could spark yet another world war, sent a note to the Western allies of the Control Commission offering peace. The note proposed free elections, reunification of Germany, and a peace treaty that would allow Germany to even rearm itself. Berlin would also be declared a military-free city, allowing all the occupying forces to go home. The only condition the proposal carried was that Germany remain neutral in all future dealings between the four Allied powers. This was an extraordinary move on Stalin's part. Given what we know about him and his track record, a question mark has always hung over its veracity. But whether Stalin himself expected the offer to be accepted or not, the fact that it was made speaks volumes about the Russian government's reservations over the depth of continued involvement in Germany. What no one expected, however, was that in the end, it was Adenauer, of all people, who ultimately refused it, categorically declaring that he would not accept equal representation of East and West German states during negotiations to reunify the country. Taken at face value, this is perhaps the most significant missed opportunity in German post-war history, representing a singular moment when the whole experience of the war could have been prevented. Having then failed to negotiate a peaceful settlement, all that was left for Stalin was to prove that communism could work in East Germany, the place of its ideological and spiritual birth, even if it took force to do it. Inside the two halves of Germany, the international deadlock and the lack of German self-determination created a mounting tension in the relationship between the two German governments and the people they supposedly represented. Through the 1950s, the relationship reached a sort of crossroads in both German states. The different courses they took, both in their own way, influenced the creation of the war. In West Germany, Konrad Adenauer was elected on a wave of popular support for successfully halting the Western Allies from dismantling the once proud German agricultural and industrial economy. But at the age of 73, when he took office, demographics were against him. In 1961, the first generation of people with no experience of the war were coming of age, and to them, Adenauer's conservatism was regarded as out of touch for the kind of leadership West Germany needed to become a modern capitalist democracy in the 60s. This view was confirmed as early as 1952, when Adenauer failed to grasp the public frame of mind over Stalin's peace offer. In 1961, his continued lack of leadership presented his chief rival and West Berlin's mayor, Willy Brandt, with the opportunity to stand against him for the chancellorship. Brandt didn't win that time, or in the next two bitterly contested elections he fought against Adenauer, but each time he chipped away at Adenauer's lead, 
reducing further his ability to wield the already limited powers of the chancellorship. Looking in on the political infighting from the east, Ulbricht could not help but see the opportunity. There was never going to be a better time to tackle the exodus problem in Berlin than whilst the West German political elite were at each other's throats. Under cover of a messy election, Ulbricht's rationale to build the wall was further influenced by the fundamental advantages of a one-party solution to the problem of democracy. Free from the Socratic method of coming to a decision, Ulbricht was eager to get the wall built as quickly as possible before the facade of stability in East Germany collapsed. This fear was well-founded given the history of his own relationship with the East German people. In the post-war years, the Soviet war reparations were particularly hard on East Germany. Conditions there were generally worse than in Adenauer's West German state, and Ulbricht's rep reputation as a Soviet apparatchik didn't help. Apparatchik ideologue that he was, his relentless program of nationalising the little that was left of the East German industries, alongside with his reorganisation of housing, education and employment, produced little by way of improvement to the quality of life for the beleaguered people. With simmering resentments, people resorted increasingly to black markets to supplement the state what the state could provide, until eventually the black markets became an unofficial part of the so-called planned economy. The antagonism in the relationship between Ulbricht and his people reached a sort of boiling point in 1953, when following Stalin's sudden death, Ulbricht found himself extremely vulnerable. Without Stalin's international, financial and military support, his unpopular government couldn't last long. Sensing the opportunity, an uprising began, which threatened to undo everything Ulbricht had worked so hard to achieve. His enemies, however, jumped the gun. The rioting which broke out in important industrial centres, including Berlin, went too far, and Ulbricht's political opponents moved too quickly to demand his resignation and the restoration of democracy. Fearing the collapse of the East German state, just as he took office, Khrushchev declared a state of emergency and Soviet troops came into the city to quell the violence and restore Ulbricht's authority. The 1953 uprising had a lasting psychological impact on Ulbricht and his successor, Erich Honecker, who stood by him through that difficult time. Forever in fear of repeating the traumatic events of that year, the GDR authorities grew perpetually to regard their own population with suspicion and distrust. What's more... His enemies were now exposed, and in the months following the uprising, thousands of demonstrators and political opponents were arrested and imprisoned. The uprising also fermented in Ulbricht's mind how the process of creating a purely socialist society would take a generation to accomplish. In the meantime, measures to subdue the population by forced political re-education could be justified as a means to an end. It's really through this trial-by-fire period that the infamous state security police, or Stasi, established only a few years back in 1950, came into prominence, finding new and ingenious ways to monitor, control and punish the population when they resisted the state's will. To date, the Stasi are historically considered the most effective and repressive intelligence agency to have ever existed, and their records are even today being slowly released, shedding new light on their methods and activities. With the Stasi at his command, Ulbricht was better equipped to see through to fruition his dream of not just creating the perfect communist state, but also a new breed of communist society. And despite his unpopularity, it would be a mistake to think that he was entirely unsuccessful. Through his early control of youth organisations, which 
sustained a drip feed of anti-Western propaganda with visibly aggressive American foreign policy in the 50s, Albrecht's government managed to establish a base of support amongst the population which kept it going through the difficult years of war reparations, communist reforms and even the uprising. One particularly effective method of political indoctrination was seen in the GDR government's use of advertising. Faced with a steady drop in agricultural production, the GDR Ministry of Information issued posters and pamphlets in schools blaming the US Air Force, claiming that American planes had been deliberately dropping insects onto farmlands destroying crops. You can see how an impressionable child in 1950 could, through the continuous exposure to such literature, grow up by 61 to believe that the party was fighting a defensive battle against a jealous and foreign enemy. For children post-61 who knew no other life, nothing could be more right than to defend the anti-fascist war and follow the party line. For those willing to conform, there were also some advantages. Free education, medical care, low rents, steady work and social status. These were all reasons for the East German people to feel proud. Admittedly, the level of support enjoyed by Ulbricht's party was never equal to the 90 to 99% vote share it consistently claimed since 1949. They were, however, the most organised, politically active section of East German society, evident in the fact that the Stasi trained over 600,000 officers and employed between 1 and 2 million unofficial informers and agents in the course of its existence. There are other reasons, too, for which the East German people could be proud. In 1961, communism as a global model of governance had a lot to recommend it. In the context of the Cold War, its sphere of influence was growing much faster than its Western rivals. In Soviet Russia, the world's most powerful communist nation, on, in which the GDR was entirely dependent, Khrushchev's rise to power in 1953 seemed to renew emphasis on this impression of communism's march towards global dominance. By 1955, Soviet Russia not only had more nuclear weapons than America, but had also just produced and tested its first hydrogen device, equaling America's technological capacity for destruction in the arms race. Two years later, in 1957, Sputnik was launched into orbit, followed soon after by Yuri Gagarin in 1961, allowing Soviet Russia to lead the space race too. In contrast, most Western democracies were regarded as decadent, self-conscious and invisible decline. Britain's days of empire were by this time fast coming to a close with the creation of the Commonwealth and its military presence around the world followed suit. Conscription would continue in Britain until 1962, but long before that the various British forces stationed across the old empire and Europe were quietly being withdrawn. This prompted Dean Acheson, a prominent advisor in the American, in the American administration, to comment that Great Britain had lost an empire but not yet found a role. In view of Atchison's remark, files from the Prime Minister's office in 1961 provide some very interesting insights. In one particular document on the prospect of any future airlift to supply Berlin, Harold Macmillan wrote in his own hand, we will pay nothing. In another document containing, contained within the same file, this time discussing the prospect of both bankruptcy and nuclear war over Berlin, Macmillan is recorded to have said, I am still not happy about the situation. I still think we're more likely to be bankrupted than blown up. Though, of course, it would not be any comfort in being blown up to know that one was bankrupt. France, as another imperial power, also present in Berlin, was in no better position. 
and America, though not poor in 1961, was nevertheless tied up with its own domestic problems of social cohesion, not to mention still paying for Europe's reconstruction, whilst also pursuing the Cold War on many different fronts and forms, including by this time Vietnam. When John F. Kennedy came to the American presidency in 1960 with his Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You speech, a rare ray of light could be seen from this liberal icon. But it was quickly extinguished in April 1961, when the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba left America bereft of moral authority, just as the British had been after Suez in 1957. By 1961 then, Khrushchev's confidence was justifiably at its height, and it produced a very distinctive confrontational political relationship between America and Russia, which some commentators have dubbed the period of politics by brinkmanship. In June 1961, the defining moment of this relationship took place in Vienna, where Kennedy and Khrushchev met for the first time. Khrushchev, by a combination of his naturally blusterous personality and short temper, tried to threaten and browbeat the American president into submission over Berlin. Kennedy, on the other hand, being new to public office, was keen not to be bullied by the veteran Soviet leader, and so, and so took an equally uncompromising approach. As a result, both men had to walk away from the summit with nothing to recommend them to the annals of diplomacy. Then, in what some might regard as an act of dramatic overcompensation and aggression by Kennedy. On 25 July 1961, he made a televised address to win the American people's support for his commitment to West Berlin. In it, he said, Berlin has now become, as never before, the great testing place of Western courage and will, a focal point where our solemn commitment stretching back over the years since 1945 and Soviet ambitions now meet in basic confrontation. It would be a mistake for others to look upon Berlin because of its location as a tempting target. The United States is there, the United Kingdom and France are there, the Pledge of NATO is there, and the people of Berlin are there. It is as secure in that sense as the rest of us, for we cannot separate its safety from our own. In Moscow, the address incited Khrushchev to test this newfound courage of Western conviction. A few days later, Khrushchev's, Khrushchev summoned the British ambassador Sir Frank Roberts to an informal audience, where he subjected the diplomat to some evident truths pointing out, first of all, that Soviet forces in Germany outnumbered the Western forces a hundredfold, and that six hydrogen bombs would do for Britain and nine for France. One can only imagine what it must have felt like receiving that threat, not to mention having to deliver it as well. I hope from the story so far you're able to see how, by 1961, the culmination of international, national and street-level events came together to shape the conditions in which the war was born. For the ne next part of the talk, though, I want us to look at what happened after the wall was constructed. Specifically, I want to examine how the wall's construction changed the dynamic in the relationship between the three levels, producing a new unforeseen locus for power, a locus which fell into Walter Ulbricht's unpredictable hands. Up to this point, we know that Ulbricht's motivation behind building the wall was essentially how to take control of his own people, how to stop them leaving and force them into submission. We also know that it was about engineering a new perfect socialist society from the children of the post-war generation. What we don't know is how he used the changed circumstances in the aftermath of the, of the construction to force a settlement that ensured both his own survival and that of the East German state. Essentially, he did it by constructing a crisis in October 1961, the aim of which was to force a stalemate. However, However, before jumping into the October crisis itself, I want to first give you some context to this, quite frankly, masterful example of political manoeuvring by Ulbricht. 
Since taking office, Ulbricht had repeatedly pressed Soviet authorities to sign a separate peace with him, finalizing the process of international recognition and affording himself the powers and immunities of a full head of state. In other words, he wanted the power of self-determination he so cruelly denied his own people. For years, however, both Stalin and Khrushchev used the offer of a separate peace to simultaneously threaten the West with yet another obstacle to reunification and to keep Ulbricht on a tight leash. Ulbricht realized that in order for him to get his separate peace, he would need to manipulate the street level and international circumstances to his own advantage. He knew that neither Khrushchev or Kennedy would entertain the possibility of a nuclear war over Berlin. So given that impasse, he calculated that he could safely set the two superpowers on a collision course, forcing one or even both sides to wash their hands of the dangerous situation before the unthinkable became possible. In that eventuality, it would be in everyone's interest to give Ulbricht the recognition he so craved, if only to save face from having to walk away. The conspicuously uneventful hours, days, weeks, which followed the Berlin Wall's construction proved to Ulbricht that this high-risk strategy could work. And the historian Frederick Taylor, in his book on the Berlin Wall, explains why. Writing from an eyewitness account of the events of Sunday, August 13th, Taylor tells us that it wasn't until around 5 a.m. before the first sign of any activity was seen from the western side, by which time, of course, the construction on, on the wall was well underway. When the response finally came, it took the form of a single British jeep, carrying all of two uniformed officers. They stayed for a few minutes, taking note of the activities across the boundary at the site of the Brandenburg Gate, before climbing back into their jeep and driving away. To the astonishment of those present, the feeling was one of total abandonment, a resounding and disheartening statement from the West saying, not our business. By midday, the lack of activity from the West prompted civilians to take matters into their own hands. Crowds began forming at different parts of the wall on the western side, but they could do little but hurl abuse at the armed guards and the workers building the new barrier. To be fair, the lack of an appropriate response, according to Taylor, was not due to incomprehension or even neglect from the West. Rather, it was a consequence, on the one hand due to the pragmatic efforts to diffuse the sense of crisis which the wall's sudden appearance had brought about, and also due to the careful calibration of Operation Rose by Ulbricht and Honecker, who designed it to target the problem of the exodus without provoking the West. As with the Berlin blockade in 1948, strictly speaking, the creation of the new border did nothing to breach the terms of existing agreements. Work was confined entirely within the Soviet sectors and crossing points remained open. People were technically free to cross the border. Of course, those who tried would suddenly find themselves drawing the interest of the Stasi. Access to officials of the Control Commission also remained open, though now restricted to three designated crossing points. One particular report from NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe sent to the Control Commission and copied into the Foreign Office in London supports Taylor's interpretation. It reads, In conclusion, the situation in Berlin as of 1700 Zulu, 15th August, is quiet, under control and with few incidents thus far. Borders effectively sealed off the refugee flow. Press reports have been largely factual, but tend towards sensationalism. The relative quiet reassured Ulbricht about his plan to force a confrontation between Soviet and, uh, Soviet and Allied forces. A master of what a number of historians call pinprick politics, he began by changing facts on the ground to frustrate the Western forces. He first established the new GDR travel agency. 
Anyone wanting to fly over GDR airspace or drive through East Germany would now require a visa obtained from, his gov from Ulbricht's government. The proposal was categorically refused by West Berlin's mayor, Willy Brandt. But since no West German would then apply for a visa and no East German border guard would allow access without the proper paperwork, almost all non-official traffic into and out of West Berlin had stopped. Together with his own crackdown on people trying to leave the GDR, even without West German approval, Ulbricht had got his way. Then on the 23rd of August, 1961, following the first deaths of would-be escapers, Ulbricht again changed facts on the ground, this time by using the deaths to justify reducing the number of available crossing points to just seven. Of these, six were designated crossing points for civilians, and only one was available for officials to use from the Control Commission. This crossing point became the famous Checkpoint Charlie in Friedrichstrasse. Ulbricht's tampering reached a sort of critical mass in October 1961, when his changes instigated a highly dangerous course of events. The crisis started on 22nd of October when a Mr. Alan Leitner, the deputy head of the American diplomatic mission in Berlin, approached Checkpoint Charlie, accompanied by a car clearly bearing official plates. He wasn't there on official business, but rather to attend a theatre performance in the city with his wife. Accustomed to free access, the American was shocked when the border guards challenged the diplomat for his identification. Stubbornly, Leitner refused the request declaring that if his status and right to access is to be questioned, then it should be by an appropriate occupation authority, and not an East German. Thirty-five minutes passed before Leitner's patience ran out, and he tried to drive around the barriers. He got about 40 yards into the Soviet sector, before his car was again stopped, only this time by an armed East German patrol. At this point, word had reached the commanders of the Control Commission about the situation. At 9pm, Eight American military police or MPs arrived on the scene with their bayonets fixed. They proceeded into the Soviet sector and walked the diplomat's car back across Checkpoint Charlie. Leitner, however, wasn't finished. Safely back in West Berlin, he dropped his bewildered wife off at a guard post and decided to test the borders twice more. The first time he was stopped and again escorted back. The second time a Soviet officer had arrived and his vehicle was allowed to pass. Leitner travelled into East Berlin, drove around for about 10 minutes before returning to the western sectors. He never made it to the theatre that night, but he had got away with making his point. The next day, Soviet news agencies announced that all foreigners in civilian clothes would need to show ID to East German border guards. Over the next few days, the war games which this diplomat of all people started escalated as the Americans sent several more official vehicles through the border. One of these excursions on the 25th of October was made by a civilian official who refused to produce ID under challenge. When ordered to turn back, the Americans raised the ante, issuing an ultimatum threatening to use force if not allowed to pass in one hour. Half an hour later, ten heavily laden US T-48 tanks appeared at Checkpoint Charlie. The two tanks nearest the barrier had also been fitted with bulldozer blades to make their purpose plain. When the deadline passed, eight additional jeeps laden with heavily armed soldiers turned up to escort the civilian vehicle 200 yards into the Soviet sector before turning back. During that otherwise normal sunny Wednesday afternoon, the excursions continued. Those which got through were shadowed by armed convoys of East German vehicles, sometimes playing chicken by driving dangerously into their paths. By nightfall, the war games became really petty when the East Germans put up powerful searchlights directed onto the American tank positions. The Americans reacted in kind by producing a searchlight so powerful 
East German border guards had to turn away from its direct gaze. The next day, the Soviets this time raised their own bet by producing 33 tanks which parked themselves facing the 10 American tanks across from Checkpoint Charlie. What then began as an exercise in obstinacy, followed by the ridiculous, had by the 26th of October become truly dangerous. Around the world, people were transfixed by the events unfolding in Berlin, perceiving they were witnessing the moments before the outbreak of a new world war. The fear and apprehension was well justified, as from the 27th of October, the games were also being played in the shadow of an even greater threat, as Khrushchev ordered the renewal of nuclear testing using weapons more powerful than ever before, some exceeding 50 megaton payloads. To the relief of all, the war games ended as quickly as they began on Saturday 28th of October, when the Soviets and then American tanks were removed from the scene in accordance with back-channel negotiations between Khrushchev and Kennedy's closest aides. Historically, the standoff was the first and only time that Soviet and US fa forces faced each other on the battlefield. They came closer here to opening fire than even in the Cuban Missile Crisis a year later. From Ulbricht's perspective, the carefully engineered crisis was a resounding success. Its end marked the beginning of a stalemate, which would remain in its frozen state for the next 40 years. It secured Ulbricht's regime and the Berlin Wall as a permanent future in the city's landscape. The international community were also resigned to the fact that the GDR was here to stay. On the question of how to work with the East German authorities after such an episode, the answer was to pretend like nothing happened, to brush over the events of recent months and carry on as if the whole episode was a bad dream. This way, all necessary contact with the East German authorities would revert to how they had been dealt with before the wall's creation. The precedence to this solution of turning a blind eye had already been established in the response to the war. It now had to be framed within government policy on recognition. From the British perspective, the problem was resolved in a report which drew the distinction between legal and practical recognition of the East German state or de jure and de facto recognition. In this proposed state of affairs, the three allied powers would maintain Adenauer's government as the only body legitimately able to speak for the German people, but accepted that due to Germany's divisions, there were limitations to its reach in determining German national policy. This formula of recognition, thus proposed to deal with the East German authorities as local governments, with delegated responsibilities under Soviet occupation authority, but without independent legitimacy. Both East and West German authorities can then continue dealing with each other without the need for formal recognition or any declaration of such recognition. A semantic position this may be, but at least it was one which provided a workable solution where all the parties could save face and avoid further dispute. So, in conclusion, what is it that I want you to take from these stories surrounding the Berlin Wall's construction? with so many climaxes and anticlimaxes. What does it mean to us today, and how should we think about and interpret it? There are four main schools of thought which try to answer that question. The first is the dominant orthodox view, propagated largely in the West, which has taken root in the years of communist decline in Europe. This view tells us that the construction of the Berlin War was simply and completely a demonstration of Soviet aggression. Advocates of this perspective place responsibility for the whole course of the Cold War on Soviet ambitions for global domination in the 1960s. They tell us that ultimately it was a failed ambition because the construction of the wall was a clear demonstration of a situation where the communist system came into direct conflict with the capitalist model and lost. What's more, 
it was also a hugely embarrassing measure for the wider cause of communism. The ideology which supposedly placed the worker as its fundamental plank of support had to, in the end, pen them in to stop the flow of defections. In this interpretation of history, America, Britain and the West at large paint themselves as peacemakers and bridge builders, citing Ronald Reagan's dramatic visit to Berlin in 1987, where he called out to General Secretary Gorbachev saying, if you value peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberation, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The second most prominent interpretation of the Berlin Wall was in the revisionist perspective. Revisionists start by challenging the orthodox notion of Soviet responsibility, by looking at the breakdown of post-war diplomacy and the whole Cold War episode as first and foremost an economic imperative. From this perspective, America's unrelenting thirst for economic growth through access to foreign, mainly European markets, resulted in a narrow-minded and aggressive foreign policy which sought to contain the expansion of command economies, America's own expansion through unprecedented investment in the military and industrial complex therefore culminated to produce a defensive rationale where Soviet forces saw themselves in Berlin as a preventative presence, defending East Germany from the fate of Korea, Vietnam and Cuba. Now whether you agree with this perspective or not, accepting there were two sides of the argument has the advantage of presenting us with a third and realist approach on the situation. This realist view accepts the orthodox representation of the wall as a clear defeat in public perception for Khrushchev, but also contends that the wall provided a way out of the predicament. Just as Kennedy then had once said, it's better to have a wall than a war, so too Khrushchev himself called the wall a hateful thing, but a thing which in the end stabilised the East German state and relaxed Cold War relations by showing that the Soviets were not intent on occupying the whole city. As uneasy as the post-construction stalemate it produced was, it nevertheless marked a significant turning point, which diffused the growing pressure from the hawks in Washington and Moscow, taking the option of war off the table. Since the 1980s, this realist view of the Berlin Wall's construction has been the most palatable position to take, but it's not the only view to come out of the revisionist examinations. The realist line of, line of argument, which negotiates a middle ground between the orthodox and revisionist perspectives, has since produced many alternative readings, which argue against the traditional interpretation of the crisis viewed from the top down, typically as a showdown between the White House and the Kremlin. To some extent, the realists sought to decenter this perspective by looking at the influence of junior partners like Adenauer and Ulbricht. But even that perspective treats the Berlin crisis as a proxy to wider ideological issues or focuses too much on clever political manoeuvring, which has little to do with the everyday experiences of Berliners. The truly post-revisionist, post-realist or contemporary perspective keeps our focus firmly on the streets of Berlin, remodelling the Berlin crisis as primarily a people's crisis. According to this view, the deteriorating conditions and mass poverty experienced by Berliners in the post-war years resulted in the mass exodus and forced the decision to build the wall. That same experience, exacerbated under Ulbricht's Stasi regime, also forced the wall to be pulled down. Who would do otherwise in a state which denied you the right to a university education, or put you at the bottom of a housing queue, or even threatened to imprison you because of what political beliefs you held? The very thought of defection to the West carried with it a prison sentence of up to three years. From this perspective, the 40-year existence of the GDR 
and the wall is an aberration in European history. A house of cards representing an illusion of state authority, locating it momentarily somewhere other than in the hands of the people. Stalin, Khrushchev, Ulbricht and Honecker, their roles in this illusion was to play the part of King Canute, attempting to roll back the tide. For those who prescribe to this contemporary perspective, the 18-year-old East German Konrad Schumann, who made a dramatic leap for freedom, became an iconic reminder of the uncontrollable, uncontainable force of will of the people in Berlin. And it's to him, and the many thousands like him, that the last word should go. With that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your kind attention. This podcast is copyright, the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>